From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. More than half of Coloradans live in what's called a child care desert, where there are more than three children for each available slot. On top of that, the pandemic's forced some child care providers to close, and a fourth of child care workers have been laid off or furloughed. We'll examine the challenges and what can be done to find solutions. Then, one of America's most respected restaurant owners from Boulder has a message for Congress about an industry that's on the brink during the pandemic. I kind of look at our restaurant as like a cornerstone species in the American ecosystem. You take us out, everything else caves in. Plus, On Something explores how one Denver-based chef is turning curiosity about marijuana into creative culinary art and elevating heritage at the same time. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. More than half of Coloradans live in what's called a child care desert, where there are more than three children for each available slot. And things got even worse during the pandemic. The first survey of the child care landscape since the pandemic started shows 10 percent of Colorado's child care providers have closed. Here to talk with us about the findings is Jennifer Stedron, executive director of Early Milestones, an early education research organization. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. Also with us is Jessica Driver, director of Little Sprouts Learning Center in Granby, Colorado. It's the only licensed infant and toddler program in that town. Hi, Jessica. Good morning. Hello. Let's start with you, Jennifer. You surveyed more than a thousand providers. That's about a quarter of the state's total. Your survey found 10 percent of the state's child care providers closed during the pandemic. Some of these might recover and reopen. But what were some of the major reasons some of them have stayed closed? Right. Well, one of the biggest reasons was uh, just the concern about health risks to children Uh, that they were caring for, and also health risks to their staff. Uh, But we did have providers, and still do, that had major, major disruptions in their enrollment. So, you know, one week they were full this spring, and the next week they might have had less than half of the children they were caring for. Uh, And then the final thing was just um, the increased health and safety costs. It was expensive and still is to uh, maintain the sort of health precautions you need to to make sure uh, children and the workforce are safe that are in your business. And we'll talk more about those costs in a moment. In Colorado, there are a child there are child care centers, but many of the children are in home-based child care. And do these home-based programs suffer more and why? Right. You know, home-based care does have some different challenges. So um, for some of our smaller providers that are caring for children in their home, They said to us, you know, we didn't really know how to apply for funding. Um, We didn't have as good communication with the state about some of the rules and regulations or some of the opportunities. And so that made it really hard for them to think about how they were going to survive. 
The other thing that's really different in a home, which is, you know, sometimes good for a family, that small setting can feel really nice, but it can also make it really challenging to maintain safety guidelines. So, for example, if you're just one person working in a home, how do you go out and leave the kids in your care to do curbside pickups, which is what you were supposed to do and still are supposed to do during the pandemic? It's just um, it's just a different set of problems. Yeah. And you mentioned major disruptions in enrollment. Can you give us a sense of how much enrollment is down during the pandemic? Sure. Well, and this this was this summer. And what we learned was about um, 30 percent of an enrollment climb for those children that were birth to age four, and then a little bit less for school-age kids, but really one in three school-age kids weren't showing up to their care settings. So pretty significant. And of course, it's continued to bounce around uh, due to all the changes we have going on within the school systems, too. And we know that profit margins can be really tight in child care centers. Jessica, as I said, you're the director of Little Sprouts Learning Center. That's a nonprofit infant through preschool program in Granby. You closed your center in March and then reopened it in June. What factors did you consider when deciding to reopen and what's enrollment like now? Yes, no, thank you so much. Um, basically, yes, as Jennifer had touched on, we we were worried about, you know, health and safety for our children, for our staff members, even for parents and families. We were worried our enrollment was down, and our enrollment actually, when we first reopened, was down 34%. With those tight budgets that we do work with, um, we we were concerned about being able to continue with that low enrollment and be able to keep our doors open. And why were families telling you they weren't coming back? You know, we we had multiple reasons from different families. Some just weren't back to work yet. And they said, you know, hey, I'm at home. Um, Some were not working at all um, on a furlough or layoff position. And many were, you know, able to work from home. And so I think at that time, with so much uncertainty, they they were able to keep their children still at home. They were still concerned about health reasons, how this affects children. We're still learning so much about that. Um, and then actually we had several who maybe were unemployed at the time who simply could not afford to bring their children back at that time. And Jessica, how have you been able to stay open? Has, enro- has en- enrollment improved? So we we have. We've been very lucky, um, you know, beginning of June into mid-July, our enrollment definitely suffered, um, you know, definitely down 30 or more percent. We um, were very fortunate. We were able to apply and receive the federal PPP loan that had drastically helped us continue to make those payroll expenses to, to be able to stay open while we did have enroll, low enrollment. Um, it has been improving slowly. Um, as of September, it, it has, you know, increased in that we are seeing some light at the end of the tunnel now. So we're, we're happy to be able to, to be open and provide this service still for our families and our community. It's good to hear. And I'm wondering if there are other changes that you had to make that made it more expensive to operate. 
Yeah, sure. We, of course, had lots more increased cleaning. So we had a lot of extra supplies to purchase. We had masks, gloves, you know, other protective um, equipment for our, our staff and our teachers. We do, as Jennifer had mentioned, do the curbside drop-off and pick-up now. So that requires more staff to be able to accommodate those practices as well as health screenings. And, and yeah, we, we've had to increase a lot in, in that aspect. And Jennifer, your survey found nearly a quarter of people working in child care were laid off or furloughed. What do we know about why some may not be able to return to work? Well, uh, first of all, uh, this is a workforce that does a great service, obviously, for communities. But it is a very low-paying workforce to begin with. So we know that about a third of this uh, workforce gets public assistance anyhow in some form because the pay is so low. So, you know, some people just had to take another job outside of the sector. And there's always high turnover in this workforce. But this is yet another reason that people might feel it's not the best place for them. Uh, we do know health and safety was still a big concern. Uh, Many of these workers also had children in their own home that didn't have care. So sometimes there was just a choice about needing to stay at home to be with their own children. Hmm. Uh, and I got to say, you know, we surveyed this summer. Things are still happening. It's a rapidly changing environment, and we're going to keep tracking it. We're going to go back out and talk to people in the fall and um, see how big it is of a loss that we have with this workforce. Yeah, that's a good point. Nothing this year is static. And Jennifer, can you talk about the supply and demand for a minute? What do we know about the need for quality childcare spaces in Colorado as it continues to grow versus what the state has now and if there are enough qualified workers? Oh, my gosh. There's not enough. There's not enough supply of uh, providers and there's definitely not enough qualified workers. Again, the turnover rate in this industry is a lot higher in K-12. And we do have, as you said, we have many, many communities that really don't have at all enough providers to take care of the children that need care. Um, we just got a call yesterday from a mountain town um, a mayor and a county commissioner, and they were saying they're fighting to keep their one licensed center open. And the reason they can't keep it open is they just cannot find a qualified teacher that's willing to take the pay that they're able to pay. So before the pandemic, this was tough. Now it's getting even tougher. And um, we're just going to have to see uh, how many centers close uh, when when this all ends to see how much catch up we have to do. And so I'd really like to know what's going on out there right now. Like you said, you've gotten this call. Jennifer, what do we know about where people with young children are leaving their children so they can work? You know, that's a really hard question right now. We definitely know that some families have chosen to stay home and take care of their children. We know that some communities have really stepped up to match uh, the care needs that have changed because uh, the K-12 education system has changed. So, you know, there are boys and girls clubs that are staying open or YMCA centers or rec centers that are filling some of the different care needs. 
we know that some providers out there have applied for waivers. So maybe they've been traditionally caring for children under school age, and now they've applied for a waiver and gotten that to say, we're going to take in more school age kids also because we know the needs are different. And the state's been really, really good at being responsive about some of those things. And many Coloradans argue that Coloradans can't back, get back to work unless there's child care. What needs to happen to help the struggling industry? Well, I think we're at a real big decision point here in the state. I mean, is this a free market that operates like many other markets uh, do? And the answer to that is no. I mean, it is expensive to have really, really good early care and education for young children. And the fact is, families can't afford to pay more for that care. We also know, um, and we've acutely learned this, that for many businesses, in order to stay open and in order to have the workforce they need, they've got to know that their community has care for the children. And so I think one thing we have to think about is, is this a public good? And if it's a public good, do we need to support it in a different way in this state? And Jessica, what has it been like being a child care provider during this time? What do child care providers need to survive right now? <laughs> yes, so it has. It's It's been very difficult. There's a lot of very difficult decisions that have had to be made, such as furloughing staff, um, when we should be able to reopen our doors safely, as, you know, every child care center, you know, has experienced during this time. So I think that that has, you know, been very difficult on everyone all around. And we, we do, we need financial support, ultimately, to be able to continue to keep our doors open so that families do have that high-quality child care. They do feel comfortable sending their children back to school so that they can continue to be in the workforce. Well, Jennifer and Jessica, thank you both for being here. Thanks for thank having you. us. Jennifer Stedron is the executive director of Early Milestones, an early education research organization. Jessica Driver is the director of Little Sprouts Learning Center in Granby, Colorado. Colorado's restaurants, those that have been able to endure the COVID-19 pandemic so far, are struggling. And it could get worse for the industry very soon. As winter approaches a lifeline for many eateries, the ability to serve customers outdoors could become impractical. Joining us to talk about the restaurant industry and his Hail Mary plan to save it is Boulder's Bobby Stuckey, one of America's most respected and decorated restaurant owners. Bobby, thank you for joining us. Avery, thank you for having me. Bobby, you, recent, you recently penned an op-ed in the Denver Post in which you expose a myth about how fine dining restaurants are supposed to run. What's the myth? Well, you know, we call it the swan theory. When you're coming into a restaurant, you want to feel the, the, the serenity. You want to forget about what happened during that day. You want to celebrate your night out, your anniversary, a great end of the week. And uh, we want to come across as that serenity. So we're like a swan. We're up top. We're trying to move as gracefully as possible. But maybe underneath the water, we're paddling as hard as we can and as fast as we can. 
That's historically always been the restaurant industry. But now, uh, due to COVID-19 and what has happened this year, uh, we're pedaling as fast as we can, not just me, but every restaurant in the country, and we might not be making it. And so you've made the decision to tell people what's going on. Now, Frosca Food and Wine is one of your restaurants in Boulder. It won the 2019 James Beard Foundation Award for Outstanding Service. So clearly, you've been doing something right with this swan approach. So why go against the code and come clean with your patrons about the way your restaurants are struggling? Well, Avery, um, it's not just mine. There's 500,000 restaurants in the country. Uh, since March 17th, I work up. I wake up every day and fight for all the restaurants and all the employees in the country. And what really concerns me is we're we've been a sleeping giant as an industry. Uh, we woke up March 17th. We were asked to close, and then we soon realized we never had a collective voice for our industry. And then as you turned the onion skin back, you started to realize, oh man. We're 11 million employees in the United States collectively. And you hear the word 11 million, and especially in, in this year, you hear so many crazy large numbers, but that's uh, 12 times the size of the airline industry. So we are uh, an industry that's massive with a lot of, lot of employees that we've got to root for right now. Now, as the economic realities of the pandemic were coming into focus, you co-founded the Independent Restaurant Coalition to lobby Congress for legislative relief for the country's 500,000 independent restaurants. How did you decide to trade an apron for a suit and tie? Well, um, you know, what happened is we just woke up that morning and it was out of 100 percent necessity and we didn't know what to do. We are an enormous industry that has never really had a collective voice for independent restaurants. Um, so we woke up and there was a few of us in uh, all parts of the country, from South Carolina to Chicago, to Portland, to New York. And we said, what can we do? And uh, we got some help, some guidance. And literally it's been a DIY, do it yourself uh, coalition. And uh, we've worked really, really hard and we're trying to save these restaurants. And uh, we feel very, very, uh, Lucky that we've gotten as much wattage as we have, you know. Mm. Um, so let's talk about that wattage. What's that? Let's talk about that wattage and what you're doing. In your op-ed, you write that one in three independent restaurants could fail by the end of the year without congressional approval of the Restaurants Act. And that's something your organization is spearheading. It's now included in the House's stimulus package. It's been a tumultuous couple of weeks for that package, and we'll get into that. But first, what would the Restaurants Act do to save independent restaurants and the jobs of the 11 million people who work in them? Yes. So, and we can talk about that in a moment, just to give you kind of the, the quick overview. Um, yes, there was the PPP that was released in March, but if we can turn back to March, which even though it sounds, seems like a hundred years ago, the PPP were, was great for a lot of industries, but for the restaurant industry, it really was an eight week fix for maybe what could be an 18 month problem. Our industry has unique needs that under other industries don't. We, we can't work from home. We can't afford to work at 50% occupancy. Um, it just doesn't work for, for our industry. And uh, this is a unique package that what it does is it takes revenues of 2019 
and then you would shore it up with uh, your projected revenues of 2020. And you could use those funds, that difference from between now and um, uh, June of 2021, hoping that you could get this industry to the other side. There's also a lot of things about our industry that's a little different. Let's say if you're uh, an art architectural firm and you, you have to close, you can work from home. You take your laptops home. A restaurant, when you close, when we closed March, whatever that was, 16th, every restaurant across the country had to give, had to either give away or throw away tens of thousands of dollars worth of food. Um, so there's a the PPP did not address these these hardships the restaurants are, are facing and will continue to face. So the the Restaurants Act gets us to that other side. So these past two weeks, they've been a doozy. The House passed a $2.2 trillion stimulus package on October 1st. A few days later, President Trump instructed his team to stop negotiating on a stimulus package until after the election. He walked that back last week and said he wants a different $1.8 trillion package. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said this week that when the Senate returns on the 19th, he wants to vote on a separate stimulus package focused on the Paycheck Protection Program. With all these plans floating around, do you know where the different options leave restaurants? Yeah, I do. And that's what's scary is uh, Nancy Pelosi in the House. They took the Restaurants Act. And when they uh, when she came back with the the Heroes Act two weeks, two weeks ago, even though it feels like two years ago, she came back. She reduced it 30, about 37 percent from her initial offering. So she came down 37 percent. In that reduction, she still found a way to put the Restaurants Act in there. So it was put in there. Um, the only way this is going to work for restaurants is if we get this bill passed with the Restaurants Act in there. And uh, if Mitch McConnell wants to negotiate, he needs to get that put in there. What he, they're, they're missing, and uh, we need the Restaurants Act, Um we're an industry that makes up 10% of the workforce in Colorado and roughly about 10% of the workforce in the entire United States. But there's so many other workers that don't fall under the restaurants that are dependent on us being open. Uh, let's say truck drivers that drive linen companies, veg uh, vegetable purveyors, farmers, fishermen. If we collapse or, or, or reduce in size by 50%, there's going to be a, a, a whipsaw through the whole American economy. And uh, really, right now, the best uh, lever to pull for D.C. is the rest, getting the Restaurants Act through. And Bobby, we only have about 30 seconds left, but in Cong Colorado's congressional delegation, who supports the Restaurants Act? You know, um, one of the early signer-ons was, um, in the Senate, was uh, Cory Gardner. In the House, um, the the complete Democratic uh, uh, how so uh, Jason Crow, Joe Neguse, uh everyone uh, in the Democratic side did. We, we have not gotten the the Buck Lamborn uh, team to sign on. And I wish they would. Bobby, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Avery. Bobby Stuckey is co-owner of Frasca Hospitality Group, headquartered in Boulder, and is a co-founder of the Independent Restaurant Coalition, an organization that's lobbying Congress to pass a relief plan for restaurants and independent restaurants.
cannabis has moved beyond prepackaged edibles like cookies to something that's part of a culinary creation in the kitchen. We're going to get perspective on this today from Denver-based chef Harold Sims. He spoke with Anne-Marie Awad, host of On Something, CPR's podcast about life after legalization of marijuana. I kind of went for like a grilled chicken. Uh, we're going to do a smothered kind of version of that. It's very Southern. This is Denver-based chef Harold Sims. And I can personally attest to the fact that this kitchen did not stink. And then the weed, the canvas, almost, <laughs> almost slipped into my old days. Uh, the cannabis that I have here uh, is Jack Frost. Recently, Harold cooked a meal for the On Something team at a local shop called Positive Vibes, where he sometimes does pop-up events. Super little bit of cannabis if you're eyeballing it. And you always want to make sure that you break this down. Yeah, this is a pinch at most. We're going to use this like a spice and a lot less like cannabis in the traditional way, right? For Harold, a chef who has easy access to legal weed, cannabis is just another ingredient. I always knew that I wanted to cook. Uh, which was weird because I never wanted to be a restaurant chef. But I wanted to learn how to cook, and I really wanted to be great at it. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of TV chefs and cooking shows that he started developing early on when he was a kid in North Carolina. I've always loved cooking shows. Like, I mean, it's one of those things that since I was watching cartoons and anime, it was like right alongside that, like, Alton Brown is like, growing up, Good Eats was my jam. Although the word jerky is an anglicized version of the Peruvian word sharky. Mm -hmm. Like just watching the way he interacted and then the older he got, like he aged like wine, not cheese. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he just like got a better suit and yeah. he just got like more like salt and pepper. And like I got a little bit of like a More sharp crush. objects in oh, his yeah. shows. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I remember specifically watching Iron Chef when I was younger. My mom goes... She was like, if you could cook, if you could go against any Iron Chef, who would it be? And I was like, Bobby Flay. And she was like, Whoa, really? She, she goes, Are you serious? And I was like, Yeah. She's like, He is the most winning Iron Chef in the world. Are you crazy? <laughs> and I was just like, Go oh, word. She was like, Do you think right? you have what it takes to go <laughs> against oh, so you Bobby, be Flay? Bobby Flay? All right, for sure, for sure. Okay. <laughs> All right, Bobby Flay or no Bobby Flay, Harold has been experimenting in the kitchen for as long as he can remember. His passion for food and for cooking actually always seemed to surprise his mom. I remember in high school, it was me and my friend Trey and Donald, and we were standing in the kitchen, um, and we were all, like, you know, we were working our waist, we were all wearing our do-rags, and, you know, I had, like, you know, saying the long white tees back then, that was the style. Um, and my mom came in the kitchen, and we were, like, whipping in the kitchen. She was like, what the hell are you doing? We were making eclairs. And it was just, like, one of those things that I remember being, like, yeah, like, we define stereotypes right now. <laughs> it's like, it's like a young, three young black men in the kitchen making French pastries right now. That's what's good. And it just got to that point where I was in college, and my grandmother got me a good housekeeping cookbook for Christmas. And it was thick, <laughs> nice. like 400 pages. And I remember just going through that cookbook for the next two years. I remember just being like the captain of the track team and also just like like the world's best housewife. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like I was just like, and I only say, I say that like endearingly because I was making crazy muffins. Like Team mom. Right. Let's eat together as a family, right. everyone. <laughs> We're going to have this apple glazed chicken over beautiful coleslaw. I'm like they're like, what the hell is going on? 
When Harold was a senior in college, he had the option to keep running track, maybe even eventually try out for the Olympics. But he didn't really aspire to be a career runner. In fact, what he liked the most about being on track was just being on a team. And so in 2010, he enlisted in the Army. I just kind of went into the Army and I was like, had this visualization in my head about like saving lives and being this like badass medic who's like running through bullets and, you know, ducking under wire and pulling people out. The job didn't really live up to his expectations. In 2014, Harold got out of the Army and moved to Denver to enroll in culinary school. He was new to Colorado. And as a matter of fact, so was legal weed. The first recreational sales began that year. I am a frequent user um, of cannabis. I, when I first got out of the Army, I had a few knee surgeries, so I was taking a lot of opioids. Um, and then when I stopped, I just never went back to refill it. Uh, and so I needed something to kind of replace that because I was waking up in the middle of the night with, like, my knee was throbbing and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and the way I chose to replace that was cannabis. So can you kind of pinpoint for me, like, where is the moment where cannabis and cooking started to overlap for you? Um, so I was in culinary school, and I started experimenting a lot with growing both food and cannabis. And what I started, like, really getting into was infusing my coffee. So what I started doing was instead, like, in the morning for my boost, I would just kind of have, like, a sativa oil, and I would mix in my coffee. And it got to the point where I was like, oh, wow, like, this is actually pretty useful. So at first I, like, go in, you know, and I'm just adding it to everything. I just have, like, a squirter. I'm just, like, putting it. And it's, like, everything tastes like cannabis. And people are like, the hell are you doing? I'm like, oh, leave me alone. He decided to take a step back and started trying to infuse weed directly into food. This took a lot of experimenting with different quantities and different flavors. And he says his first few attempts tasted awful. But then... I finally started microdosing and getting down to, like, the two to three milligram range. And now it's just the point where it's like, cool, we can roll with that. Okay. You know, like a nice sunny day kind of feel. After finishing up culinary school, Harold started his own personal chef business called Harold for Hire. He chefs for private parties, he does pop-up events, and even teaches classes. And a few years ago, a client approached him about making cannabis-infused food. One of my clients was really interested in, like, just an infusion workshop, essentially. Uh, they wanted to know how to kind of break everything down, how are you going to measure things out, um, which I'm great at numbers, but I needed, like, a calculator in front of me, so, like, don't test me on that. <laughs> um, so I have a very Alton Brown approach to food. No, uh, I imagine you taking out, like, like, a chemistry set. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm one of those dudes who's just kind of like, all right, like, here's a whiteboard, and, like, let's get down with this, and, like, all right, and, like, they're just kind of like, all right, this isn't fun anymore. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, ah, it is one of us. I like it. So I honestly feel like Harold is sort of downplaying this a little bit. When he and I first spoke on the phone and I asked him, how did you start learning how to cook with weed? He started citing a research paper back to me. He says when he was able to see it all as a big math problem, it all just clicked. He started getting more requests for infused food, but not enough to make it his main line of work. Not like, say, pop-ups, where he essentially sets up a small, temporary restaurant, usually at another local business. Most of my business was based in pop-ups mm -hmm. and kind of like personal chefing, going to people's houses and events and parties, stuff like that. I did on the side just kind of like do a few infusion classes, but it wasn't really 
in demand because I don't really think that people knew what they were asking for or yeah. what they were looking for or that there was any alternative because I think that even though edibles and infusions have been around for a long time since cannabis has, uh, people are still in the mindset of, like you said, sweets, brownies, candies, yeah. and, and that's fine, but people are also forgetting that you're infusing into butter, which it's just butter. Mm -hmm. You can't do anything with it. Um, but then I think it begs the question of if you can do anything, should you? you know I mean, I think people like her just kind of <laughs> like, It's not a question right. of if we can, right. <laughs> if we should. Right. Speaking of can or should, now would be a good time to go over the basics of eating cannabis. Now, I'm not going to tell you not to try this at home, but if you are going to try this at home, Harold is here to help. First off, the biggest difference between inhaling weed and eating it is the time it takes to affect you. Inhaling it means you'll probably feel the effects in a few minutes. When you eat it, however, the time it takes for you to feel it depends a lot on your metabolism and a bunch of other factors. The adage, start low and go slow, applies here. Try a little and wait a while before trying more. And if you want an easy way to get started, Harold recommends infusing olive oil. You have to start by activating your weed, a process called decarbing. Which is putting it into the oven on a low heat, right around like 250. Do that for 20 minutes to activate the THC. And then let it sit in oil, well, I would say overnight. That infused oil can be carefully dosed into other foods. This is a low effort, easy way to get started, especially if you just want to try it out. But if it all still sounds daunting, Legal Weed is here to save the day. In many regulated markets, you can walk into a dispensary and buy cannabis-infused olive oil, along with infused honey, hot sauce, even a flavorless powder that can be mixed in with anything, like Benefiber, but with weed. And if you're not even into cooking, that's okay, too. If you've ever watched Barefoot Contessa, you know, store-bought is fine. Buying edibles versus making edibles. Pick one. Buying. Really? Oh, that wasn't the answer I was expecting yeah. at all. Yeah. It's just because I eat them so rarely. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, so it's, it plus like, it's usually when somebody's like coming around, like I like to, I like to do a little, like a spread. Yeah. And so I'll just do like a bunch of like random edibles and just kind of be like, oh, we also got some non-infused stuff. But making them myself is just, yeah. It's work. Just like, like people are like, okay, so like you must cook like really good by yourself. Like you have, no. Yeah. Like, I have my <laughs> loaves of bread and PB&J. Like it's just like constantly like, I'll eat like, I'll make two PB&Js and just pour like almond milk and just sit on the couch and watch cartoons for like, I'll be like, we're good. Yeah. Like, I'm not touching a stove today. Like I'm yeah. not turning anything on. Like, and I'll like I'll order food out. Like, nah, it's, I do not make fancy. And when I do make fancy food, I'll like eat. Like a few bites of it because it'll take me so long to finally make it. Now, yeah. like, oh my god, like I'm tired. Now sounds like a good time to run and grab a snack. After a quick break, how Harold's experience with infused cooking gets put to the test. And the winner is. We're listening to On Something, CPR's podcast about life after legalization with host Anne-Maria Wad. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This year's elections could be the most important of our lifetimes. As you get ready to vote, look to CPR News for context and clarity in our daily reporting. And visit CPR.org for a free voter's guide, a comprehensive resource to help as you consider everything on the ballot. 
get to know the issues and candidates you're unfamiliar with, including third parties. Find the CPR News 2020 Voters Guide at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Let's get back to On Something, CPR's podcast about life after legalization of marijuana. We're getting insight into how cannabis is being used in culinary creations and how one Denver-based chef named Harold Sims was able to elevate it even more. Here again is host Anne-Maria Wad. A year ago, Harold got an amazing opportunity. An opportunity to walk in the footsteps of some of his cooking idols. So how did you end up on Cooked With Cannabis? Somehow uh, they magically just reached into the Internet and pulled out my phone number. And they gave me a call. And uh, through a little bit of, you know, casting process and we were kind of talking back and forth, I got on the show. The Netflix cooking competition show Cooked With Cannabis premiered, of course, on April 20th of this year. Each episode, three new contestants had to cook a three-course cannabis-infused meal for the judges. Singer-slash-chef Khalees and cannabis cook Leather Stores. Let's get it <laughs> Oh, and a table full of increasingly stoned celebrities. Yeah, we're Lucy Gooseys here. Just Lucy Gooseys. Lucy Gooseys. And at the end of each episode, the winner got the grand prize. 10,000 smackers. The show is a lot like Chopped, but imagine each contestant's basket is just like full of weed. Oh, the world. Incredible. Natural wonders, cultural diversity, extraordinary food. Don't forget extraordinary weed. (laughs) This is our Global Eats episode. Welcome to Cooked with Cannabis. Okay, how about if we sing for this one, Weed Are the World? We are not going to do that. On this Global Eats episode, Harold was representing African food. And when he was given a chance to cook on television for all the world to see, he went in with a very clear goal in mind. My hope is to showcase Michelin star quality African cuisine paired with premium cannabis. Are you guys psyched? I'm so excited. If the dining world were the Olympics, Michelin stars would be the medals. The more you have, the more distinguished you are. And for Harold, making African cuisine at a Michelin level was about more than just giving the judges good food. I remember looking at a list of like all the Michelin star holders and all the restaurants, and I remember all these Michelin stars in the world, and only a single star was in Africa. You know? Really? Yeah. And so it was one of those things that I was like, that, how, how is that possible? How is this the oldest continent? How is our food so ancient? And, and we have had kings, like the richest empire on the earth. There has to be something coming out of this. And so once I started really studying that and realizing that not only were we underrepresented in the Michelin community, we were underrepresented uh, in the world at large. Like I said, we, you know, we can't, I can count on one hand how many African restaurants I know in the U.S., you know, that are like of note, you know, they've been publicized and have like really phenomenal chefs. Uh, and that's just a problem to me. My job is to show people a cuisine from my country with my skin color, with my people. All of these things are vastly underrepresented. And now I get to showcase a cuisine that's not often seen. To me, uh, that's beautiful. I got a few citrus rinds that I soaked in a little bit of Can you lay out the meal that you made? Uh, Yes. So the first course was a surf and turf, which I did a black barbecue sauce. And then I had uh, octopus and ribeye with that. And I did a kind of homage to uh, Sudan. So I did uh, kumquats, 
Fresno chilies and cucumbers were pickled together. And I put those on top. You know, I, I always like to learn with delicious food Thank you. about geography and about people, and you, you've done that right here. This Thank is, you. That's our theme. It's, it's mm -hmm. wonderful. Thank you so much, chefs. And then the second dish, I did a lamb, and I did a seasoned rice, cream collard greens, and few different sauces. One was called a jug, which was a Yemen green kind of a cilantro and pepper sauce kind of thing. The judges really liked that one. As you steal the lamb? I nothing, nothing, nothing. I'm lamb. not stealing he's the lamb. Lunatic. I would never do that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> like, I think he's going to, he is, he's taking he's the lamb. He's not taking the lamb. <laughs> there was Harold, cooking on camera, like he'd been doing it all his life. No joke. There's even this great moment in the episode where his competitors, the two other chefs, are wondering out loud how they're ever going to beat him. I'm sorry, but that chop is like the only thing that's going to win it. Yeah, I think it was good. During the dessert part, I really felt like you went on the show with the goal in mind to like use this platform to teach people about African culture. Right. So, Harold, what do we have? So, all cultures have their own myths and legends. What I decided to do is there's a bird in Africa called the Mbutulu bird, right? It's the lightning bird in English. If you can catch its egg, it has medicinal properties and grants you immortality. These won't do that, but they will get you hot. <laughs> so, <laughs> medicinal properties are medicinal properties, right? I love it. So, what we have here is a little creme anglaise, milk tart style. I have a little bit of passion fruit curd in there. I use a mix of heavy cream and coconut milk infused with THC. That's going to be about three milligrams. And the egg is acting as a pat of shoe is going to be the egg for you. And here's the thing. Harold is a trained-at-a-culinary-school kind of chef. But his education in African food was something of an extracurricular activity. In class, the focus was mostly on French and European food. And if you wanted to learn about anything else outside of that, you had to take one class that tried to cover everything else all in one semester. I think it's 10 days at a time you'll, like, do Vietnamese cooking or you'll do, like, you know, Thai or whatever. And so we were lightly introduced, like, Ethiopian, but I think that's, like, a cuisine that that's all that people know. It's yeah. like Ethiopian cuisine when they think African. Yeah. And it's one of those things that people go, like, I want African food. And it's the same way as, like, saying, I want Asian food. Mm -hmm. And, like, be, like, that's not helping anybody. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, do you want Punjabi? Are we going for, like, Sichuan? Are we going for... Right. And so... It was one of those things where after culinary school, I saw how broad and diverse food could be. So he did his own research into the different cuisines of Africa. And right away, he started to make connections to familiar food, low country food, the type of stuff he grew up eating in North Carolina. Think collard greens, beans, okra, that kind of stuff. He learned that those foods trace their roots all the way back to Africa because they were brought here by enslaved people. He dug even deeper, taking a DNA test to find out more about his family's lineage. You know, then they showed how much of our family is from the Mali Empire and from Cameroon and Congo. It was just one of those things that allowed me to go a little bit deeper. It gave me, like, permission. Yeah. You know, it allowed me to feel that it was okay and I wasn't faking because I wasn't actually from Africa. You know, I was from North Carolina. Right. And that was, like, a big fear of mine. You know, even being because being black is like you don't get the benefit of any either nations. You don't get the benefit of Africa or America. Like you're not quite either. And that was always something that really bothered me. So I had to find my way to be like give myself permission to be black, essentially. You know, and that was the way to do it was like, OK, well, I cook African food. Like how black can you be? And in the end, it paid off. Only one of you will walk away 
with this $10,000. That chef not only gave us a global meal to remember, but they also impressed us with their masterful use of cannabis. And the winner is Harold. <laughs> Congratulations, Harold. And then you heard from a lot of people who are from Africa afterwards. Right. How does that feel? That was incredible for me because this is like, obviously they couldn't taste it, mm-hmm. but they know like the names, they know the vernacular, they know what it's supposed to look like. So when I say that this is what I'm making and it's translated onto this plate and they go, okay, that's dope. It, it's it's incredible. Like it was it was so validating for me to finally get that. You don't have to guess whether yeah. or not they they respect your food or they thought that that was cool. Like they're letting you know with this outpour of like support that they do respect your food. And I mean, it's like to this day, like it'll still people be like, saw you on Netflix. We finally found you. Like, congratulations. That was dope. And it's so empowering to know that people are just kind of like, yeah, man, like really proud of you. Like that represented us well. I loved it. After winning Uncooked with Cannabis and taking home the $10,000 prize, Harold is taking a minute to think through what comes next. His next endeavor might take the shape of a food truck or a walk-up window. Time will only tell. Maybe it won't look anything like that. He has this one idea to offer a wilderness cooking experience using his training as an army medic. People could sign up to learn how to forage for ingredients and cook with him out on an open fire. In the meantime, he still does private chef gigs and pop-ups. And to adapt to the pandemic, he recently started offering prepared meals for pickup in Denver sometimes. And though his next move is still to be determined, I can tell you from experience that this guy knows how to make amazing food. And so then I have my immersion blender here. Since we're both such Food Network nerds, I asked Harold for a little favor. I wanted my chance to hover over the shoulder of one of those famous TV chefs. And Harold was more than happy to oblige. We didn't drop in on his kitchen at home, no. He invited us to a shop called Positive Vibes just outside of Denver, where he's hosted many pop-up events in the past. He wanted to invite us there because he felt like this place was part of his story. So we met at the shop, all of us in our masks, and Harold was already there, set up with a hot plate at one counter. Behind him in the display cases were these elaborate pieces of glass art, and I found a spot to stand near the claw machine while Harold worked his magic. That's that's moment. Like, mm. This needs everything. Oh, guys, that's my screen. I love it. Somebody can So this is my uh, red pepper sumac chicken with greens and corn rice. Da 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 da. I am deeply sorry that we don't have the technology for scented podcasts. Because, wow, this meal smelled amazing. It was nutty, it was citrusy, just a bit of sweetness from the roasted red peppers. It was the perfect morsel. And if I didn't already know there was weed in it, 
I wouldn't have believed it. It was like he used it as a seasoning. It just went with everything else. Shows like Cooked with Cannabis use the weed as just a gimmick. It's a way to showcase the food while the judges get more and more stoned and provide all the comic relief. But for Harold, the gimmick gave him a platform to turn people on to the flavors and histories of Africa in a meaningful way. With the African food, I think that a lot of people were really surprised because that was the first time that African food has been put in that context. And it's the first time in a long time that African food has been presented on TV in a competition setting where it actually could hold its own. And who knows? Maybe we'll see Harold get an even bigger platform to spread the word about African cuisine. Maybe the Food Network. You be the judge of whether he could take on Bobby Flay someday. That's it. Let's, let's, come on, Bobby. Come at me, man. If you see this randomly, come get me. If you show up, <laughs> if you show up, man, I'm going to keep the same energy. But uh, just know I'm ready for you, B. I'm ready. Now, we may not have smell-o-vision, but we do have a YouTube video of our little Food Network moment with Harold. It's called Harold for Hire. That's hire, as in the more of his meal you eat, the higher you'll get. The video is also on our Twitter and our Instagram, at OnSomethingPod. Check it out and share. Anne-Marie Awad and an excerpt of On Something, CPR's podcast about life after the legalization of marijuana. You can hear the entire episode and others at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, like, I have this thing is, like, you don't necessarily have to be good at something, but you have to be louder than the other person who's better than you. You know what I mean? So, like, if there was any ever a question where somebody was like, ah, oh, man, I don't know if Harold should win. I'm like, I should. And they're like, oh, he said he should, man. He said it louder than you did. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 